This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The fate of dozens of national monuments that protect public lands in the U.S. remains, well, remains unclear. Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke wrapped up a review of the monuments last week and submitted recommendations to the president, but he didn't send them to the public. Zinke did say, quote, a handful should be reduced in size, but none would be eliminated. Here to help us understand the complexities of this story is Jennifer Yaknin. She covers public lands from E&E News, which focuses on energy and the environment. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Zinke's announcement came after Trump ordered sweeping reviews of 27 monuments across the country. What did the administration look at and why did the administration look at these specific places? Well, back in April, President Trump decided to order a review of all monuments created since 1996 that include more than 100,000 acres. The administration has had this uh, had this focus on large monuments, in particular because the law that allows monuments to be created, the Antiquities Act, calls for uh, the smallest possible area to protect either areas of scientific, historic, or cultural interest. So essentially the concern might be that these are too big and too broad of, of, of area. Exactly. What do we actually know about the recommendations Zinke gave to the president last week? Not a whole lot. The report was expected to be public at some point. It was a 120-day review of these 27 monuments, uh, six of which the secretary has already said uh, won't be changed in any way. But when it came time for the report, they're actually calling it a draft and saying that the president now needs time to review it uh, and decide what he actually can do, which monuments should be reduced. So who does know? Is it just the president and Zinke or or who's informed here? At this point, it would be the interior secretary and the president and those members of his staff that are that are involved in the public lands. Do we know when the full report might be released to the public? We don't. uh, And particularly uh, with the flooding that's going on in Texas and Hurricane Harvey, the White House had said they uh, had had told E&E today that they still aren't ready to make any sort of announcement on when they might be ready with some proposals for those monuments. Now, there have been leaks, and and some of them have reached the New York Times, the Washington Post, saying Zinke wants Trump to shrink three or four national monuments, including a drastic reduction to Bears Ears in Utah. What do you make of these reports uh, from the New York Times and the Post? They're expected. Uh, The understanding was uh, in an interim report, Secretary Zinke has already said he does want to make significant cuts to Bears Ears. It's 1.35 million acres in southeast Utah. It's a beautiful, sprawling monument uh, and has been one of the focuses of this review, along with another site in Utah, Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. It's in the southwest, sorry, southwest corner. uh, And that was created by President Clinton. And the review was sort of actually framed to bookend those two monuments. Uh, There's a big push within the state of Utah to turn over a lot of federal lands to sort of shrink some of the protections on monuments. And so it's no surprise that it's focused there. Now, Zinke has said he wants to shrink but not eliminate. Is that a change from from earlier reports? Uh, The initial initial review did call for either changes to management plans of these lands, which might open them to things like off-road vehicles or, uh, if it's not already, grazing. But the idea that they might attempt to eliminate some monuments was actually unprecedented. And so it was it was newsworthy to see the secretary come out and say they wouldn't be attempting to do that. Now, could that be called a win for the environmentalists out there who've wanted to to see this whole thing kind of go away? I think that conservationists who have been opposed to this review from the get go would say no. 
And they have, because they don't want to see changes to any of these monuments. Technically, Congress is allowed to change monuments. And since 1906, when monuments were first created, they've actually gone ahead and dissolved about a dozen. Uh, It's something that Congress rarely does because monuments tend to be very popular. Uh, They are public lands. A lot of monuments, like the Grand Canyon, for example, have gone on to become national parks. Now, President Obama designated many of these monuments. Um, Is that part of the rationale here for the Trump administration, that these were Obama-designated monuments? Uh, There were a lot of concerns uh, among conservatives that President Obama used the Antiquities Act more than any other president to designate monuments. Uh, And he designated large monuments as well, Uh, not just the the Bears Ears National Monument in Utah, but also uh, a number of marine monuments that have come to to legal challenges. Like water water monuments? That's right, yeah. Um, monuments based in the Pacific and the Atlantic. Uh, we, we keep mentioning the Antiquities Act over and over here. Let's let's kind of get everyone up to speed. What is this law and why is it now so suddenly controversial? It seems like it's out of nowhere. There's this Antiquities Act that everyone is talking about. Uh, yeah. And so this is something that actually dates back to 1906. Uh, around the early 1900s, there were a lot of members of Congress that were concerned about uh, what was called back then pot hunters. And these were basically uh, folks, including some museums and researchers that were stealing from archaeological sites in the West. Uh, You have to remember, of course, um, you know, many of the states that we're in now were then territories. uh, And there was a desire to find a quick way to protect those sites and to stop the looting. What Congress came up with was the Antiquities Act. They said, "Okay, we'll give the president power to look at existing federal land or territories and say, I immediately protect this as a monument. Uh, That passed in 1906. And of course, Teddy Roosevelt was our first president to use it. He actually designated, I want to say it was 15 monuments and 1.5 million acres. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're talking with E&E News reporter Jennifer Yaknin about a recent decision on national monuments. Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke recommends four of the monuments, three or four of the monuments, which protect public lands, should be reduced inside that in size. That's according to The New York Times. Um, So does Trump have standing with the Antiquities Act to do what he is intending to do here? Well, that's the big question. So the Antiquities Act has definitely come up uh, in court cases before. Uh, Roosevelt's designation of the Grand Canyon as a national monument was actually the first challenge. And back in 1920, the Supreme Court said the president has broad authority to designate a monument. And if I remember this correctly, John Kennedy was the last president to actually reduce a monument in size. Is that correct? That's right. So there have been 18 or 19 instances where presidents have reduced monuments, but they've never eliminated one. Uh, but now, because of some changes in the law that happened in the 70s, so after Kennedy reduced that monument in New Mexico, uh, it's become an open question whether or not presidents still have the ability to reduce monuments. And several conservation groups, as well as state attorney generals and members of Congress, have vowed to take the Trump administration to court if they attempt to do so. Uh, there's no legal press None of those previous reductions have ever been reviewed. Uh, So it could make for an interesting and drawn out legal battle. You mentioned earlier that Congress has the power to change a monument size, designation, etc. Is there a chance that Congress could be involved in this situation? Uh, They could. It's an open question. Uh, Congress did actually attempt to get involved uh, with the Bears Ears National Monument before it was created by designating those lands uh, under some different uh, different designations that would help protect them, but not as a monument status. Mm. Uh, But they couldn't get that legislation through. And so whether or not Congress might come back and try to shrink some of these monuments would be an uphill battle. 
Many of these monuments are thought to contain natural resources, timber, coal, natural gas. Is this really about that or is it also about having access to public lands? It's about both. Uh, uh, President Trump has offered sort of a, a mixed view on his take of public lands. At the same time that he has said he is against transferring those lands to states, uh, uh, not uh, standing up to those folks that are in the land transfer movement that would like to see all federal property turned over to state control. Uh, He's come back and said he wants to keep those lands, but he also wants to greatly increase uh, energy production on public lands. So oil, gas, mining. uh, He's obviously been less focused on solar and wind, which are also possibilities. Where did this motivation behind this push to shrink or eliminate public lands begin? Was it a Western story or, or is this happening all in D.C.? It's a big push out of the West. Of course, most of our public lands are located in the West. Uh, and Utah in particular has been a center of this movement. Why? Well, it's it's an interesting question. Utah, of course, has their five public parks, right. the Mighty Five, that they, they spend millions of dollars promoting. Uh, but they also have one of the largest amounts of land that is designated as monuments and other BLM lands. Uh, and there is simply some debate over uh, whether or not Uh, ranchers and uh, local officials, uh, other folks in the state want to see more government control or less. uh, And there's been a big push there, including from their state legislature, uh, to try and seize control of federal lands. Trump has spoken on this issue of transferring public lands to the state. He told Field and Stream it was a bad idea because the state could quickly sell the lands to private interests. That was during the campaign. Uh, Where do you think the president really stands on public lands now? And how much is Zinke and how much is the president? Is it entwined? Right. Uh, Secretary Zinke has often echoed the president in uh, demonstrating his own desire not to sell off. He promises not to sell or to transfer public lands. But at the same time, he also wants to open them uh, to greater energy exploration, which can sometimes cut off access for hunters, for anglers, uh, for folks that want to be out hiking and biking. What are you watching for next? This isn't going to resolve itself in the next couple of weeks. So what's the next big issue that you're, you're watching in this? Right. Well, of course, the report itself is something that we're all sort of poking around for and uh, trying to get the details on. And then the other question will be those lawsuits. Uh, It will be what exactly can a president do under the Antiquities Act? And if it turns out that a president can start slashing monuments and the courts approve it, what happens next? How many monuments are reduced or open to mining, gas, drilling uh, or other uses? Thanks for being here. Jennifer Yaknan covers public lands for E&E News. She joined us to talk about the Trump administration's philosophy when it comes to public lands and national monuments. It's not just national monuments facing changes. The Interior Department also wants to bring more money into the country's national parks, and that could include exploring what private companies can do. CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood explains how privatization could change the future of camping. Mountain views, deer, elk, and moose, it's all visible from Tim Grifford's campsite inside Rocky Mountain National Park, and it costs just $26 a night. Just take a drive through anywhere through this magnificent park, and you, you can't help but be impressed. Grifford can walk out of his campsite and hike for hours with his two adult children. But the site isn't perfect. No hot showers, no Wi-Fi. His daughter had to drive to Estes Park to complete a law school assignment. Right next door to their site is a large bathroom with running water, but it's fenced off and out of service. It's not optimum, but it's the last spot available, and here I am. Tim Grifford wouldn't have it any other way. But Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke sees a problem. The national parks need $11 billion in maintenance that the government can't afford. 
That's for roads, buildings, bridges, and trails. The government may not have that money, but private companies could provide campground upgrades to enlist a new generation to visit national parks. Contemporary campers expect a variety of services when they go to a campground. Derek Crandall is with the National Park Hospitality Association, a trade group that represents park concessionaires. These companies flip hamburgers and make beds inside some national parks. Crandall says companies can provide much-needed upgrades to national park campgrounds and do other things to make the sites accessible. They can sell food or rent tents. Over 80% of all Americans now live in urban areas. Uh, It's great to introduce them to, to the outdoors lifestyle and give them a little taste but we don't really need to to inconvenience them or scare them off. The Interior Department doesn't have a formal proposal, and Rocky Mountain National Park declined to comment, citing that lack of specifics. But Secretary Zinke has mentioned expansion of public-private partnerships several times this summer. Right now, private companies manage campgrounds in only a few national parks, including Mesa Verde. They provide basic services like toilet cleaning and trash pickup. Expanding that relationship makes park advocates like Dave Nimkin nervous. He works at the nonprofit National Parks Conservation Association. It's not entirely clear that the kind of development that might occur with some privatization of the campgrounds would necessarily be a a good thing. Nimkin says, sure, campgrounds may get a facelift, but he worries that prices could go up. And he says that campers could be less likely to interact with rangers if campgrounds are privatized. When it comes to reaching out to the next generation, Nimkin says the Park Service needs to find other ways. I don't believe that you necessarily have to have the kind of experience in a national park that they might find at the mall. I think that changes the very nature of what, in many cases, a national park experience is all about. There may be a middle road. In the Rocky Mountains, the U.S. Forest Service has companies managing 70 percent of its reservable campgrounds. Those companies collect fees, clean the toilets, and mow the lawn. A contract determines the rates and payments the Forest Service receives. Diane Hitchings works with the Forest Service and says, in some cases, private companies make infrastructure improvements instead of direct payments. They buy the picnic tables in large quantity. So the Forest Service is able to then use the money that we would normally spend to do those type of things and run other recreation programs. Watching on the sidelines of this debate are Estes Park business owners like Greg Query. He runs a franchise of Campgrounds of America. His campers want the showers, Wi-Fi, and coin laundry. There's even a pancake breakfast. I'm the chef, so I have to be a little bit modest about this, but I've been told that the pancakes are pretty good. If the National Park Service makes upgrades, Query's not worried about losing business. But he says Secretary Ryan Zinke may want to take a page out of KOA's playbook. So it's not really about what the administration wants. It should be focused on the guest. Every year, about 40 million people camp for at least one night. Query says the way he decides what to improve at his campground is to ask people what they need. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. How 
how does a community heal after a tragic event? That's a question Aurora has grappled with for five years. On July 20th, 2012, a gunman killed a dozen people and injured many others in a movie theater. Aurora Mayor Steve Hogan says that night doesn't define Aurora. But what it did do more than anything else was define for those of us who are in the city of Aurora a responsibility to not only never forget, but a responsibility to identify a place, a safe place, where anyone who wished to spend some time there could do so. The mayor spoke at the future site for a memorial to those affected by the mass shooting. Hogan announced that Kentucky-based sculptor Dow Blumberg will create the memorial. The 720 Memorial Foundation put out a request for artists to share proposals for this memorial. Nearly 170 people applied. Why did you want to submit your name to design this memorial? That's a great question. I had already had a couple of pieces in the area, so I thought that my chances of being selected were uh, not great, but my wife and I discussed it, and, you know, one of the great motivations for me pursuing a career in public art is to create pieces that truly have meaning, that truly impact people. And you, I love using uh, the innate power of art to, to affect people, and in this case, healing uh, and memorializing. And so I think those were just overriding the practical considerations. What do you remember feeling when you heard the news about the shooting here in Colorado? I think like everybody, uh, why, confusion, anger. Did did that stick with you in, in terms of how you, when you decided to create this memorial, this monument to, to this, I mean, how much of that stuck with you? Unfortunately, there seems to be a fight these days to keep our sensitivity with the almost regular occurrence of things like this anymore. And so I'm excited to try to bring some humanity back to it, to try to maintain a differentiation uh, between the events that everyone lost that night, everyone impacted that night was an individual. And even though we're getting immune and inured to it, that should not be the case. And so I like that this is an opportunity for a community and hopefully a nation to stop and pause and, and look at it closely. It was important to the community that this memorial not have any political statement. Um, they also didn't want names on it. They, they wanted something uplifting. And you proposed a sculpture of 83 metal cranes. Each four and a half foot crane will represent someone who died or who was wounded that night. Can you describe a bit more what it actually looks like? The crane idea came when I visited for the site visit and uh, somebody had sent in or a group of churches, I'm not sure who, had sent in a thousand paper origami cranes. And mm. this tradition had begun in Japan uh, after after Hiroshima Nagasaki and, and a young woman in hospital had begun making cranes as part of her healing process. And it took on the meaning uh, in subsequent decades of healing and peace. And I have always just loved the image of the bird. It's very universal. And so uh, what, what I proposed is 
83 cranes, as you said, about four and a half feet in wingspan. They're going to be very stylized. We're not going to have any detail. But the crane has a beautiful silhouette, just a beautiful, beautiful uh, shape to it. And so they fly from all directions of the compass, beginning on these berms that surround the site. Uh, I pushed the envelope from the original site they had given me, and I, I, inf- I wanted to infuse the area with the art so that you were in amongst it. So they come from all different directions, and they swoop down these berms and congregate towards the center, at which point they, they all come together and rise vertically about 18 feet in the air. Um, the idea is that that night there are people from all over the country, from all walks of life, from all cultural and ethnic backgrounds, and were brought together by this event, by circumstances. And I wanted to convey that in the piece. And you want people to walk through this this sculpture, not to simply just observe it, but to actually walk underneath the cranes, around things. And, and, and why is that? Because to me... It's so much more powerful when I'm in amongst it, when I'm experiencing it. I don't want to look at art. I want to be a part of it. And I love that experiential aspect that a site like this, uh, where we had some some space, allows us to do, to, to accomplish that. And I feel that by truly infusing the site with art, it will feel extremely organic to the site. And then again, we have to remember that in 10, 20 years, as the memory fades of this event, the art needs to stand alone and still somehow create a a sense of healing and peace for other people experiencing tragedy. These cranes are white, except for the top 13 at the top of the sculpture. Why is that? I wanted to without names, differentiate the 13 lives lost that night. And they were all part of the same event, so they're all cranes. But those that are at the top of the vertical climb uh, will be a frosted, clear polycarbonate. And so they'll have a very transcendent feeling. The light will come through it. Uh, It should just be a beautiful, beautiful, subtle metaphor. And and that 13th uh, crane represents an unborn child lost. uh, Yes, yes. Each of these birds will have a canister that can be filled by by the survivors and and their family members with anything they want. Uh, Will you share a bit more about that? That was one of the ideas I was most excited about, and I think one of the aspects that truly will set this piece apart because it bridges... It bridges the gap between the art and the actual people who experienced uh, that event. And it's it's a very unique approach in in creating an intimacy that I think is is really, really powerful. Because, yes, we're creating a piece of art that that, that must stand for decades and, and, and retain its meaning, but it also is part of the healing process, not just for as I have learned in my, in my talks, not just for the families of the lost, not just for the survivors and their loved ones, but also uh, the first responders experienced massive amounts of trauma that night. Uh, first responders who wore all different uniforms and badges. 
And so like a, like a, like a uh, pebble dropped in a pond, you know, these ripples emanate, it, it, not just now, but for generations. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel, and we're speaking with Kentucky sculptor Dow Blumberg. He's been selected to create a memorial to the victims and survivors of the Aurora Theater shooting. What does it mean to be selected as as the artist and, and take on such a great responsibility? Because this this impacted Colorado, but also the entire world. Very much so, Nathan. And that's a a question that's very hard to to articulate the answer to because. It's everything that drives me to create works of art. And yet when it, that opportunity comes, the responsibility, to use your word, is very, very heavy. And yet beautiful at the same time. So it's like, be careful what you wish for. Especially, especially when you begin to it stops just being a project you're trying to get and you pass that and you're actually sitting across a table watching tears running down cheeks um, seeing healed bullet holes as a shirt moves aside seeing pictures in people's wallets that they're showing you and hearing the story that they feel they must tell for the dozen two second dozen time um it's it's a powerful, powerful, and very humbling. I think that would be the first word I would use, would be very humbling. And you've met with the families and, and, and the victims, correct? Many of them. What what do you hope they feel when it's when it's time? When it's time for the unveiling and, and it's there and it's 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 ready for them to, to experience along with the rest of us? I can't say because that's one of the intrinsic values of art, right? And same with music. Everybody projects their own life experience onto it and therefore comes away from it with something different. But I would, my prayers be answered if a lot of healing was taking place. Not, not, not because these pieces of metal can affect healing, but... Because there's a closure, there's a recognition that this was not just forgotten, that something beautiful came out of something horrific and ugly. Will this monument be unveiled all at once, or will you be on site building this and slowly <laughs> seeing it come to life over, over months or years, or how long will this take? Those practical things we'll have to work on, but I would like an unveiling moment, and that'll be somewhat difficult. It's a large and open site, and yet it because of the... Uh, the complexity of the piece and the numbers involved, it won't be able to just be dropped down on the end of a crane. So it will be a, a a week or two of installation. So, But I would hope for an unveiling moment, just out of respect for everybody involved. There was there was nothing about the theater or the people in the theater or, or, or that made them specific targets. How is it to create something so moving out of something so random? You know, we all we all are born with different gifts, you know? And I think one of the beautiful things in life is when we can find what those are and can use them. And I think one of the aspects of, of being an artist that is very often not discussed or talked a lot or taught a lot about is 
being able to come to the heart of the matter, uh, being able to communicate something that resonates. And you're right, there's a terrible randomness. And, and I think the decision to not use names and not and avoid specificity, specific, <laughs> specifics right, right, right. Is, uh, was a good one. And so th- there is a, uh, there's a bit of a randomness about the piece, you know? There's a bit of a um, non-specific quality to it. It's a flock of birds uh, as a whole. It's made up of individuals, mm-hmm. like that event was, but the overarching takeaway was the whole event and the overarching takeaway of of a flock of birds is the movement and the the beauty and and all of those things rather than individual birds although it is made up of individual images thanks so much for joining us thank you so much nathan kentucky sculptor dal blumberg has been selected to design and build a memorial to the victims and survivors of the aurora theater shooting You can see images of his design at CPRnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Worthy is the name of a fictional app that asks people to judge couples. Quote, is the girl good enough for the guy? This imagined app is at the heart of a new young adult novel also called Worthy. It's set at a high school around prom time. Fort Collins author Donna Cooner wrote it. And as we often do with books for young people, we read Worthy with a young person. Adi Nassikar is starting ninth grade at the Colorado Springs School. He was a finalist in a writing contest from Rocky Mountain PBS. They spoke with CPR's Ryan Warner. And it's nice to have you both on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Donna, tell us more about this app you've imagined, Worthy. Well, the way it works is that some unknown person is pulling the strings behind the scenes. Uh And they created the app, and they're choosing which couple goes up every week on the app to be judged. It is throwing into the spotlight some of the more popular couples, which everybody likes to talk about. But it's also throwing into the spotlight the main character, with her new interest, and it's a very new relationship, so it's in that very fragile state. And that's what sort of brings up the whole idea of are you influenced by other people's opinions about who you're with? Adi, tell me your impressions of this. When you get to the app Worthy and you open it, you see that people are fully raining down their judgment, saying really sometimes nice things, but also incredibly mean things. Like what? Oh, they, they, they're saying things like they're not worthy and that they're an odd couple. One isn't right for the other. They're not comparable to the other. One's much smarter. One's not as smart. And so it's just it's quite the spotlight on the couple. It's interesting, too, that the app is whether the girl is worthy enough for the guy, mm-hmm. not whether they're like a good match mm-hmm. equally. That's an interesting decision. My editor and I had a long conversation about whether it's going to be the couple that's worthy and play both uh, genders. But we discussed a lot. For one thing, it was authentic for me as a writer and and a female to really have felt that judgment as a woman. 
But also, more girls are on the internet than boys, and they express that they're felt more left out by social media, that they get that feeling of loneliness. And it seemed that that was the place where I wanted to really shine the light, was the judgment on women and young girls in particular. I was wondering, where did you get the idea originally for writing the book? Well, I always try to find, when I first start writing any book, some very personal connection to bring into the story. And for me, the idea of worth, that word worthy, has such connotation to it. I think we all struggle with feeling worthy in a lot of different venues, and especially in relationships. So for me personally... Um, when I began my relationship with my husband, there was a lot of people that weren't sure that we were worthy of each other. Mm. Um, and so, how old uh, were you? I was older. I was um, in my 30s when I began my relationship with my husband. So this doesn't stop at high school. It you're doesn't saying. <laughs> stop at high school. And uh, my husband is born in a different country. I was born in the United States. His skin is brown. Mine is white. He was raised. Um, Roman Catholic in California, and I was raised Southern Baptist in Texas. And there were a lot of people that thought on both sides of our families and friends that thought that this was not a couple that was going to work out. We've been together for over 20 years. It's going great. And I think most of that has died down. But I certainly could relate to the idea of a new relationship coming under a lot of scrutiny Mm. and a lot of questions. So that's where the idea came from. Well, particularly, I thought a lot of the characters were interesting. And I was just wondering, like, for the characters, where did you get the inspiration from them? Was it from your own life? And how do you stay hip, right, to young people? Um, Both of those are great questions, and they kind of go together. Uh, Nikki, the character in the book, is a large uh, size girl, very confident in her size. And I think it brings, uh, when you're writing a book for teens, you can kind of relive your own insecurities, but you can also make yourself better. You can relive it in a more positive way. And for me to have a character that was of size, but also very confident in herself, was a way of sort of me fixing some of the insecurities that I had when I was growing up. Oh, interesting. So Nikki, you're saying, is an idealized version of you, a version that knew what to say. I wish I had been more confident in my size. And so I gave that character that quality that I wished I'd had. And so that was really fun. Um, In my other role as an educator, as a teacher of principals in particular, I'm in schools a lot. I'm talking to teens a lot. I'm talking to principals struggling with issues that teens have. And that keeps me current, I think. Adi, do your parents place limits on social media for you? Um, Personally, I don't actually use social media. I can't say that I would really even want to. uh, I mean, does that make you in the minority? I think it definitely does make me in the minority. All of I see all of my classmates using social media, constantly posting things, talking to each other. And it's it's definitely odd for me because I can't necessarily relate, but I see the effects it has on people. So this is a decision you made or like your parents made for you or what? This is actually a decision I made for myself. I don't really want to quite put myself out there yet. I feel like it would be more of a task for me. And personally, actually, I know I'd be worried about what others thought of me. And I don't quite want to 
do that yet. That may, that's maybe something I'll look at in the future. Donna, what do you think of that? Well, I think it's wonderful. I just read this really interesting article in The Atlantic about oh, yes. how, how it's um, basically oh, ruining yeah. the youth of <laughs> yes, America. Yes, it's ruining the youth of America. But it is it, it is eye-opening to look at the statistics of how much more we're seeing depression in teens and how many, much more they're, they're ruling things out of their life. They're starting to drive later. They're starting to date later. They're starting to get jobs later all because they're spending so much time alone in their room on their phone. They're tethered. They're tethered to that phone night and day. And so I congratulate you on the fact that that you've made this decision. Even as an adult, it's an incredibly addictive um, situation with social media. And I've been surprised at how interactive it's been with with an author. Uh, When I grew up, I never even met an author and now I get emails daily. I get oh, from, tweets from readers. From readers. Mm. And um, I had one a couple of weeks ago that was really funny. It was, you, there's a period missing on page 32 of, you know, <laughs> and I just thought you should know, you know, and there's nothing I can do about it at this point. But, and it was from a loyal reader. And I'm like, well, thanks for telling me. But, but it's so instantaneous. They can comment. They can critique. They can tell you exactly what they think immediately. This piece you're referring to in The Atlantic is called Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? Yes. Well, you're a writer as well, Adi. And I wonder what observations or questions you might have for Donna just just as about the craft of writing. Well, I kind of uh, related to the main character, Lyndon, because she's a aspiring author mm-hmm. and she has a lot of trouble showing others her work and worrying about what they think. And personally, I felt uh, the same way a lot about a lot of my writing, wondering whether people like it, whether it'll be good enough. So would you say there's, do you have any advice or what would you say to people about confidence in their writing? I mean, especially if you get tweets that say you missed a period. <laughs> I, I think it never goes away, that struggle to feel like you're good enough. It goes back to that idea of being worthy. Are we worthy to be writers? But I also think that uh, a big step of becoming a real writer or really sharing that is is putting yourself out there. And it's it doesn't get any easier, but it's something that's so important because it, it does make your writing go to the next step and really helps you get to where you need to be the, in the next piece that you want to write. So towards the end of the book, you hint at another app. Yes. That is emerging. So yes. it goes from Worthy, this app that asks if in couples the girl is worthy of the guy, to I think it's called Crush Donna. Mm-hmm. And that's a way to transmit to someone you have a crush on that you do right. with, with, with some anonymity or protection. Right. right. And there's actually an app very much like that out there. Um, we've had a lot of discussion back and forth with my editor about, do we talk about real social media apps or do we create names? And everything goes away so quickly and is replaced so quickly that by the time you put a book out there, you're probably already uh, old right. in if the technology. It, if you mention birds, any, you know, any, you, exactly. You're uncool already. So I think what I wanted to try to accomplish with that sort of teaser at the end was that you can't fix it by external means of 
doing away with a certain aspect of social media. It has to be something internal that you're going to decide this isn't for me or, uh, as you've so bravely done, decided, to, you know, I'm going to stay out of it for right now and, and not participate. And it, it's not something that especially educators or adults can control. And so the idea is that worthy may go away, but something else going to replace it. will rear its head. Yes. And it's about the internal compass Right. Of the kid and of the parents exactly. to navigate that. Exactly. Yes. Well, thanks to both of you for being with us. This was quite the worthy interview. <laughs> Thank you for having <laughs> Thank us. You. Fort Collins author Donna Cooner's latest novel for young adults is called Worthy. My colleague Ryan Warner spoke with her and with Colorado Springs ninth grader Adi Nasikar. He was a finalist in the Storymakers Writing Contest from Rocky Mountain PBS. <laughs> There's a big increase in roadkill along Colorado highways. A survey from the State Department of Transportation found nearly 7,000 wild animals killed just last year in crashes that caused two human deaths and hundreds of injuries. That's about a 50% increase in wildlife collisions in the past four years. But on one stretch of state highway, that trend is reversed. CDOT's Lisa Suentes says collisions are down almost 90% in a spot north of Interstate 70 in Summit County. She told CPR's Mike Lamp that new paths made just for animals have made the difference. It's just so exciting to know that these types of structures have this success rate. It's wonderful. When you build these uh, overpasses, bridges over the highway, or underpasses, tunnels underneath, is there some way that you kind of communicate to the animals that this is where it's safe for them to go, or do they just figure that out? You know, there's always that joke is, how do you let the animals know where to cross the road? (laughs) And um, it is a good question. What happens is these overpasses or underpasses are built where there is a significant number of animals that naturally cross the road in this area. And the high fencing will funnel animals toward the underpass or the overpass so that they will cross in that specific area. These projects cannot be all that easy to install. I mean, you've got some rugged terrain in some places, and they can't be inexpensive. No. um, Colorado 9 with the two overpasses and the five underpasses and the 10 miles of fencing, you know, this was a huge project and it was $40 million with local governments, counties, grants, private donors. So there was a lot of buy-in, but again, that was a hugely extensive project on Colorado 9. You know, other projects are typically just one overpass or one underpass and some projects are just fencing. So we're looking at a few million versus 40. Do you ever encounter any opposition to these projects that help animals get under or over the highways? Do people complain that it's unnecessary or that there are more important things to spend money on? Personally, I have never received any criticism for us constructing these types of structures. I think that Coloradans have a love for the outdoors and for our wildlife. And I think most people understand that we have built these roads in these areas that are a natural habitat for our wildlife, and they appreciate that we're trying to make the highway safer. 
Leisha Swantes with the Colorado Department of Transportation speaking with CPR's Mike Lamp. Similar wildlife crossing projects underway are in the works elsewhere around the state near Montrose, Durango, Salida, and Pagosa Springs. When you think lions, tigers, and bears, you might not think of eastern Colorado, but one of the world's largest carnivore sanctuaries calls the plains home. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis went there. Look closely at the grassy plains in Keensburg, and things suddenly feel very exotic. Got a chuff for <laughs> Yeah, there's a chuff. That's Kent Drotar, the director of the Wild Animal Sanctuary's Ambassador Program. This 720-acre facility is home to exotic animals from around the world. And those chuffs are from Tamara, a white tiger. She was rescued from a place in southern Ohio. It was just um, wet, muddy, urine-soaked, cold enclosures. They had all kinds of ammonia burns on them. They had frostbite. Nearby, there's a mountain lion, one of 18 animals rescued from an Iowa mall. Now, visitors to the sanctuary see these animals from above on the world's longest pedestrian bridge, a mile and a half. Once they get with animals of their own kind and they're in a big habitat as time goes on, they have less and less desire for human contact. Drotar says the sanctuary wants to buy nearby land to nearly double its size. He says as states tighten their laws around exotic animal ownership, the need is clear. In Ohio, permits are now required after a man freed dozens of large carnivores. Because of that, the wild animal sanctuary took in nearly 60 bears from Ohio last year. Until the animals, if you will, are kind of cleaned out of those places, sanctuaries have a much higher demand. But the sanctuary didn't get its start saving animals from malls, garages, and basements. Pat Craig is the director and founder of the sanctuary. He started it after touring a small zoo. In the back, they had a bunch of lions and tigers in tiny little cages, and I thought that was just really odd because you never see that from the front side. Craig was told they'd either find homes at other zoos or be euthanized. So at 19 years old, he decided to build a rescue for exotics, a dozen enclosures on his parents' small farm outside of Boulder. He then sent letters to zoos across the country that said, I know you have surplus, but if you're going to euthanize something, maybe I can help. And I thought I'd get a little response, but in the first month, I got over 300 responses. So I started driving around the country and picking them up and taking them back. Craig says a zoo giving a teenager a jaguar is a good example of how citizens used to get a hold of large carnivores. As a result, there are more tigers in private hands in Texas than there are left in the wild. Nobody could have really had access to lions and tigers, so there were really no need to write a law to say you can't have one as a pet. But once those got in the private sector and people started to breed and sell, then pretty soon it was like, wait a minute, this is crazy. Craig's sanctuary grew and moved to Keensburg in 1994, but was kept closed to the public. Then he realized people needed to see the problem, what he calls the captive wildlife crisis. So in 2002, he let people in. Now nearly 200,000 people visit each year. When we had to open to the public, it was a thing like, okay, how are we going to do this and not take money away from the animals. The $30 adult emission price might seem steep, but Craig says that money just pays for the basics, for bathrooms, insurance, and upkeep of the bridge. So they also ask for a donation, which goes to the more than 450 animals. The sanctuary's yearly budget is more than $11 million. Craig says most of that comes from individuals all over the world. So now our organization travels quite often to other countries to rescue the same kind of animals. And at the same time, the good news is we're trying to educate those countries. Look, don't go through 30 years of this problem. Craig says the issue of captive wildlife has improved in the U.S., but has gotten worse elsewhere. The sanctuary has taken in zoo animals from Argentina, circus lions from Bolivia, and bears from Mexico. 
Erica Ortegoza Vasquez works with Craig to move animals from Mexico to his sanctuary. Soon she'll open a hospital to rehabilitate large animals that are often close to death. She says the hospital is the first step she's taking with the Wild Animal Sanctuary to open a large-scale refuge in Mexico. She says it respects the animal instincts of all of its patients, so that a lion that's been treated like a dog or a cat can remember its animal instincts and regain its wildlife that's been taken away. She says she's relied on Craig's expertise and technical help and has already rescued more than 100 animals. But there are also the animals that Craig can't save. And, and that's hard because I'm, I'm actually the guy that has to say no. <laughs> I try not to put that on anybody else here. While Pat Craig hopes to expand the sanctuary, he also wants to be out of business one day when there are no more lions, tigers, and bears left to save. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. And that's our show. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.